This is how we overcome it. Moving on, keep it up. Reaching to the world. Arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we practice. Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, welcome back to the last episode in this series, at least for now, on the Mandela Effect in the Bible, where we've been looking at characters that we thought would have sworn were in the Bible, but aren't. Characters that we have combined multiple things and people together to create one character. And the last couple of weeks, we've been spending some time talking about characters that are more implied in scripture. Um, so they're they're kind of there, but they're kind of not. So where are we taking things today, Sarah, for this last episode? So today we're going to be talking about some characters who are in the Bible, but we sure have made up a whole bunch of stuff about these characters <laughs> that are not explicitly said in the Bible mm-hmm. anywhere, but we could swear that they were, but they're not. Uh, but these characters are in the Bible. Um just not named or numbered they're just kind of a group of people that arrive and they do some stuff and then they leave um but these are the magi the wise people wise ones who visit toddler jesus and his parents and give gifts and then go away a different way so that herod will not find the location of toddler jesus so they're very interesting, cool characters, but like we don't know a whole lot about them. We don't know how many there were. We don't know their names. We don't know what kind of animals that they were riding, if at all. Um, we just know that they came and they gave three gifts, and that's that's it. So, so wait, they visited toddler Jesus because my nativity has baby Jesus in it. It's time for us to do some myth busting right from the get go, don't we? <laughs> how old was jesus um so i always understood him to be older not infant Mm -hmm. but not maybe not weaned yet so in my mind that says toddler um but again it might not actually say just he's a child yeah so let's maybe unpack that like while everybody's used to Christmas pageant version of the story from Luke 2 and a baby in a manger. When Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth, he gives very little detail about the actual moment or day of Jesus' birth, but says uh, the Magi show up and now they're in a house. He doesn't say anything about a manger or anything like that. Definitely no innkeeper there either. Um, (laughs) But Magi come and visit the house where they are. And when Herod decides to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, um, he kills those who are two and under according to the timing he'd heard from the Magi, which makes it sound like that maybe they had visited and they found someone who was two years old or that it would have been two years since they'd seen the star in the sky that led them there. But so, yeah, it may well be toddlery two-year-old Jesus that the Magi come and visit. So that much we do have biblical grounding for. Magi, wise people, or, I mean, maybe we should even unpack that. Mm-hmm. We're not great at really even defining that, but the hymns make it sound like they're kings. Uh, wise men is often how it's translated, but the word magi or magus is the singular doesn't actually mean smart or wise or even um, uh, went to college. <laughs> um, it's like the word, it's the same root we get the word magician from. So one of my footnotes in my Bible uh, also will translate that word magi as astrologers. Yep. Mm-hmm. So people who study the stars and 
so so I always kind of think that, yeah, it's not a far off than stretch to call them wise ones because like you have to be pretty smart to be able to like study the stars and its movements and um things like that. Like you have to have good eyesight. Lots of things, right? Um and it's fair to say that um this is a time when what we call astrology and what we call astronomy were kind of blended together. So they probably knew some things that were solid and true, like when you could predict when the next full moon was, and they probably knew about the North Star always pointing north and things. They also apparently believed things like when events happen at different positions in the sky, it was reflecting if events happening on Earth. So that mm -hmm. modern science no longer upholds. Modern science will still say, yep, there's a moon and yep, there's the North Star. Modern science generally will go, it doesn't really matter what month or or star sign or constellation you were born in. Um, that doesn't really matter who you marry or you know, don't pick Sagittarius or like none of those things are real. But in the ancient world, those are signs of great education and knowledge. Um, and to be a, a student of astrology and astronomy certainly would have been some level of education. Um, it also seems like these people might have been like advisors. You often get stories in ancient uh, culture where the advisors who study the stars would be the royal advisors. You know, don't do this in this season or wait till this season because I can see it in the stars. I mean, like they would have been soothsayers, almost like the advisors to Pharaoh back in the Exodus story who have powers that are akin to magic somehow uh, and are, are held in a certain amount of esteem, but um, aren't kings themselves and don't necessarily wield political power themselves. Yeah, I, I also think it's fairly fair to say that we do not know the gender of these yeah, people, right? Um, that it doesn't, we don't, it doesn't explicitly say, and in a lot of, um, in a lot of language that does have gendered, like, nouns, where there's a noun for the male thing, and then there's a noun for the female thing, and then, like, when they become plural, if there is even one guy it will corrupt the group in the sense that then the noun becomes the male version of the noun yeah. um, just because there is one guy. Um, but we, so we don't know. We don't know whether the Magi were all men or if there were some women. Um, my own thoughts are that there might have been women, but at the same time, in so many cultures at this time period, education was for men and not for women. And so if it was just a group of men, that wouldn't be surprising either. But I also feel like because we're not explicitly told that we should at least leave the door open that one of them might have been a woman. It, it seems also a little bit ambiguous whether we should see these figures as respectable like oh they're from royal courts like their advisors or if they're seen more like snake oil salesmen I, a professor that at least i had at seminary maybe you did too sarah mark allen powell used to talk about that um, magi by the time of the first century uh that was a position that might have in the earlier centuries have been seen as something wise and respectable but are closer to like charlatans or like snake oil salesmen you know by the first century that like there was an earlier era where 
these figures who were often associated with Zoroastrianism were held in higher repute, but by this time, they might have been more like laughable, like the person who owns the crystal store in your town, like maybe not like the most uh, well-respected person in town and believes in all sorts of magic and ghosts and supernatural things and kind of is a laughingstock. The, these people might have been respected, but they also might have been just like the, the, the image of magi might have just been foreign, strange, out there, outlandish kind of thing. And it's, um, I think, so the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, um, I think often make people think that it might be more respectable because these are expensive gifts, but we're also never told the amount. Right. Like, mm -hmm. you know, this is one of those things that like in our brains, because of what our nativity sets have shown us, you know, they're big boxes of, or a big bag of gold. Right. And so in our brain, we go, oh, it's a lot of gold. It's a lot of frankincense. It's a lot of myrrh. Therefore, they were very expensive. Therefore, the people giving the gifts were wealthy enough to give that much mm -hmm. and like this might have made a big difference for mary and joseph and their very small young family but it might not have been it might have been a very small amount of all of the things yeah. because again we're not told and because we are told that there are three gifts we didn't make an assumption about the number of wise people that come to visit the toddler jesus yeah we figure three gifts means three people right but again that's the story our nativity sets tell us right we have right. no idea how many right. we know it's and more we, than one we don't even necessarily know if they're all coming as one group or if right? three people or multiple people from different locations i mean like again like if if you're committed to the three magi who show up on christmas eve with their gifts in front of the manger you're sort of assuming they've all come from one spot and all traveled together uh later christian tradition gave names to these characters and imagine them coming from three different countries. So each of them had the same astrological conclusions apparently and eventually show up. And because they're treated as a group by Herod in the story, and at some point they all seem to be together, um, but we don't really know how long they set out. Were they? Did they leave one point together and travel together? Did they go from separate starting points? And do they have a whole entourage? I mean, three gifts, mm -hmm. but is that a whole you know wagon train of people? Is that three people hitchhiking with what they could carry on their backs. It's, we don't know. And yet later Christian tradition invents the whole backstory for them, including names. Maybe that's a, a place to, to talk for a minute. Like, so the, the, the biblical narrative in Matthew itself is pretty sparse, um, but later Christian tradition has named these three characters and even given them countries they come from, uh, what it traditionally, uh, Balthazar, and Melchior and Caspar, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and they come from, oh, I just had this. Um, Balthazar is often represented as the king of Arabia or sometimes Ethiopia. Melchior as the king of Persia. And um, Gaspar or Caspar as the king of India. Um, so again, with the idea of like these questions are all, are all, or, it's kind of answering a question for us, right? Like it's Christianity is spreading outwards out of beyond Judea. Judea. Mm -hmm. And so by having these three wise men or wise kings representing these 
three separate Gentile nations, it is part of that outreach to the Gentiles. It's saying, yeah, it's Jesus is for you too. Um, As well as kind of gives it a nice bookend of like at Jesus's birth or when Jesus was very small, both the lowest of the low and the highest of the kings came and worshiped him like it's a nice it's a nice bookend it, it this is a place where you can understand and maybe even go like yeah i i could see why you have good intentions with your faithful imagination imagining names for these characters and those backstories and and i i do think it's fair too to say when matthew tells this story i do think matthew in particular is trying to make the point that jesus the jewish messiah mm-hmm. is for all nations and that by the end of the story that motion to include everybody is said real explicitly on jesus lips go now into all nations and make disciples of all nations. Um, and that Matthew is the one who repeatedly points out the women and the Gentiles who are in Jesus' genealogy. And that Jesus, you know, makes the point of that there's a turning point where now we're going to start reaching everybody, that that's important for Matthew. So you could understand, I, I do think part of why this story is there at all is to say what God's doing in Jesus is pointing toward this is for everybody, not just Jewish people, but Gentile people. But again, you could leave the story with the details as you got it and still get that point. You don't necessarily have to give them names and countries they come from. But my guess is that's what someone was trying to do to say, you know, the point of this story is that these people came from faraway lands because Jesus is for people in every country, every nation. And I can get that. That feels like a place where faithful imagination is helpful as long as you don't move it into. And this is the only way we can tell the story. Their names are Malchior and Caspar and Balthazar, that kind of thing. For... Christians who know the tradition of putting up a house blessing at Epiphany, those names come back as well. If, if people know that tradition of marking with chalk on your doorpost uh, at Epiphany, the tradition is you put the year split up, the you know, the first two digits, and then CMB, and then the last two digits of the year. And the CMB is uh, sort of ambiguous. It can either be the Latin uh, for Christ bless this house, uh, or it can be Caspar, Melchior, and Belthazar as the nod to the names given to the Magi. So it's interesting how, again, these names that somebody made up at some point that we don't have in the Bible at all have become ossified into the practice in some Christian communities of doing house blessings at Epiphany with those same three letters. Um, So I've done house blessings a couple of times, but it's, it's been long enough that I don't really remember. Why do we do house blessings on Epiphany? Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) And again, like, this is another one of those, like, some traditions don't even know what we're talking about. For those traditions that do, it might have been because, like Matthew tells it, the Magi come to the house where Jesus is, not to a stable or a manger or something like that. Um, It might also be because Epiphany is celebrated at the turn of our calendar year, and it's one of those convenient, oh, we're starting a new year, this is our church festival, let's do it now. Mm -hmm. It might be one of those happy coincidence kinds of things as well. And that there's ambiguity, the same three letters uh, can be CMB for Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, and they can also be the Latin Christus, Mansion, and Benedictus, like Christ bless this house, um, so that like those things might have been conflated over the years. Okay. Because I know that there are, like, having done research for this episode, I realized that there were some epiphany traditions that I just were completely unaware of. Like, in other countries, it apparently has, it was 
was or is the tradition that very small kids will leave bowls of water and some grass and vegetation for the Magi's camels the night before Epiphany, and then they'll awaken to small gifts in their shoes in honor of the Magi's gifts to the infant. I had no idea that (laughs) this was a thing, and I'm kind of bummed because if child Sarah had known about this, I was willing to leave stuff out for mythical gifts to show up in my my feet wear. Totally down for it. Like, kind of bummed. I didn't know about this as a kid. Yeah. yeah. You could have gotten the two Christmases. It is interesting. I could have gotten three if I had also known about St. Nicholas's Day. Yeah, true. It it is interesting how we in in various cultures, all of which have Christian backgrounds or Christian connections, we've done variations on the idea of little presents because someone is coming to visit. So, is it Saint Nicholas bringing the presents? Is it Baby Jesus somehow bringing the presents? Is it Santa Claus who's different from Saint Nicholas? Is it the Magi? But that same idea, uh, it's, it's like someone latched onto the idea. Shoes and or uh, presents and shoes is a good idea. We can come up with a backstory <laughs> later, but presents and shoes. Uh, it, it, it's it's also interesting too that in that part of the tradition the camels get their own like they're definitely there so put out water and grass with the camels the way some kids put out um, reindeer food for Santa Claus's reindeer um, where again Matthew doesn't mention animals of a- any particular sort but Isaiah 60 which is often sort of seen as a precursor to the epiphany story has this image of camels coming from other countries bringing gold and frankincense which and again if you're an early christian like oh this sounds like it's talking about the epiphany story so you're going to picture that that scripture passage over against the story you know about gold and frankincense and people bringing gifts and so yeah definitely camels where matthew just says magi and doesn't say anything more about it Yet I have a friend who will swear to you, and, and I don't, I've not talked to him long enough about this, but it's a colleague of mine who will say that camels were not at the first Christmas, but more likely Arabian horses. Again, we don't know. Right. They could, well, they could have ridden on donkeys, like Mary supposedly did, which, you know, was a whole nother. Right. Yeah. And again, that's a that detail that seems likely, but not, there's nothing in the text to say one way or the other, huh? Mm-hmm. It, it, I think it's worth asking with a text like this, like, okay, why does Matthew bother to hold on to this story at all? And what are the things that are important about it? And maybe that tells us where it's worth spending our energy trying to get the right answer and where there are places we can go. Uh, I don't know. And it seems to me like part of it for Matthew is that emphasis on the Magi represent the inclusion of the Gentiles, that what God's up to in Jesus eventually includes all peoples. And that it also sets up that um, uh, contest maybe between the powers of the day like Herod and Jesus who comes mm-hmm. as this you know threat to Herod even though he's a harm you know harmless infant um and that like we've talked about before that in some ways Jesus arrival is a threat to the powerful whether it's to Caesar uh, in the empire or Herod on the local throne and that um the story of the birth of Jesus has so many echoes of the uh, story of Moses and the Exodus as well, that Matthew's trying to play up Jesus as like this new Moses figure. So the way that all the babies were killed in uh, in Pharaoh's day in Egypt in the beginning of the Exodus story has echoes in the, the uh, slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem that's related to the Magi as well. I think Matthew's trying to play up those connections as well. Are there other things about this story that you think are important to hold on to or about the figure of the Magi that you think are worth uh, especially holding on to? 
I always find it interesting, and often we'll bring this up when I preach on Epiphany, that this day on the church calendar has been celebrated for, what is it, centuries almost, longer than Christmas Day. And I think that goes back to what you're saying, Steve, about, you know, the Magi being from various parts of the world and the fact that, you know, the gospel was meant to be spread throughout all the world. Um, you know, and, and so often, at least in my tradition, Epiphany is just kind of like another day on the calendar. An afterthought, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we celebrate Christmas. And then by the time Epiphany actually rolls around on January 6th, we're like, the, the lights are down, the trees are down, the decorations right. are put away. Right. Everything's gone. I'm like, no, 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 no. Christmas isn't over yet. This yeah. is the 12th day, friends. Yeah, yeah. And I think the early church, the idea behind it was that Epiphany begins this um, time of Jesus being revealed to the world or mm -hmm. the world sort of uh, Jesus being manifest to the world and us realizing what God has done for us. So that the emphasis on the revealing rather than on incarnation, maybe, or that like it's it's yeah. less about the moment that a baby is born and more about, oh, we finally realize, you know, th that that sense of various mm -hmm. other various people having moments of encounter with God and that subtle uh, difference in emphasis seems like that. That's why the early church found that the epiphany moment to be such an important one to mark, um, even though in, in some ways they're they're two sides of the same coin, you might say. To me, um, it's honestly, it's the anonymity of the Magi, the, the fact that Matthew doesn't give them names that I, I particularly like or relish about them because there's this sort of, like they blow in and they disappear. And it's, it's also, uh, I think important, and I don't quite know what to do with it, that we never find out like what happened to them when they go back mm -hmm. to their lives, you know? Um, like you always want to imagine, oh, and then they became Christians. Well, that, that's not a thing to be right now. There is no such thing as a Christian when baby Jesus is a toddler. Um, there's not even disciples yet. So like something compelled them to travel some distance to meet someone that they had never met before, convinced this was the thing to do and to bring these valuable things and lay them down and offer them uh, in acts of outright worship. And then they disappear and they seem to be convinced that's what they came to do and that was enough and then they go back and uh again some part of me wishes that uh we had a story ah and then they all became disciples i'm mean, like i i can understand mm -hmm. the impulse to do fan fiction and go ah but the, the children of the magi ended up becoming the founders of churches in arabia and like but we don't get that instead we get they were there for this moment and then they disappeared and i think to be honest as a pastor Sometimes I think we imagine that our job is um, when people come to worship or they're visitors or newcomers for the first time, that it's only we've only done our job if they come and they join and they stay there forever. And that's the only way success is measured rather than sometimes people are brought into your life for a while and then life mm -hmm. leads them somewhere else. And that's not a failure. That might be they needed to be there with you for that day or that moment or that season of their life. And that it's not a failure if they're not there forever and they don't put down roots and have their children and grandchildren, great grandchildren there. Um, but that it's OK, that that's the Magi story, too. And I don't think it's that they stopped believing in whatever they thought Jesus was when they went back home, but that they needed to go back there. That that's a difficult thing for us, especially for pastors to wrap our brains around. I wonder, Steve, if the Magi lived long enough. We talked a couple episodes ago about the disciples possibly being teenagers. If the Magi lived long enough to still be around when Jesus died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Honestly, I, I, I kind of imagine them being older. 
I always with imagine the disciples being beards, older right? too. <laughs> yeah, right? like you know, yeah, my age at, at the youngest, perhaps at forty, you know, but probably older than that. You know, did they live another thirty years, right, 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 to know the rest of Jesus' story? Yeah, and again, we, like, oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I I think that the mental image that most of us have are that the wise ones, wise men, are old, right? And so it's like. No, of course they wouldn't have lived until Jesus's Jesus's death. But at the same time, like again, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that they are old. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think some part of us, and I, there's some part of me that I'll, I'll admit this too, wants that there to be some closure that they all eventually became what I am. I signed on to the dotted line. I'm a Christian. That they must have done the same thing too, because that's what you do when you meet Jesus. And like there is the possibility that that never occurred to them. And I've got to make room in my theology as well, that these people who clearly were, God went to the trouble of putting something in the sky to get their attention, that God claimed them, even if they didn't join the team the way I joined the team. That's mm -hmm. an uncomfortable thing too, because again, it's super easy for us to go, no, the way to be a Christian is you do these five things, you sign on the deadline, you say the right. creed, you get the baptized. These guys weren't baptized. And like none of those things that we expect, this is what Christians are supposed to do, or this is how you get saved. They have none of those things. And Matthew doesn't seem to paint their story like a tragedy, like, oh, isn't it sad? They went away back to their country. They're burning in hell forever. He seems to think this is a sign God's reach included them, too. But they didn't do any of the things that we we tend to insist that you do to become a Christian. There's there's a, a poem uh, of T.S. Eliot's that I love, and I, I make myself read it every year on Epiphany, um, uh, called The Journey of the Magi. And um, it imagines, like sort of late in life, one of the Magi reflecting on having gone uh, and made that journey. And um, the end is, is what gets me. There's a, a point at the end of the poem where the, the narrator, one of the Magi says, uh, were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. I'd seen evidence and no doubt. But I thought they were different. This birth was harder and bitter agony for F, like death, like our death. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. It's like this haunting line that once they went back to their old mm. countries, they were different. Like after having come face to face with Jesus, they couldn't go back to their old lives anymore, that they were changed somehow. Um, and it like it, it it's again, it, for, for me, reading Eliot's poem is helpful, faithful imagination. What would have been like to come face to face with a Christ child and then feel like, and now I got to go back home. But what's the point of my life now that I like it? Like, how do you wrestle with that moment and then go back to your life? Um, or much less believe in the old things that you believed in. Um, but I, I love that ambiguity in the story. And that one of the things I love about Eliot's poem is the way he invites me to imagine that as well. And to me, again, that's helpful to say, yeah, this is one take on it, not the only possible take, and to say, mm -hmm. faithful imagination, but I'm not going to decree this is the only way to interpret what that story is about. But for me, exercises like that can be helpful as long as at some point we learn to set them down and say, but that's guessing. Well, uh, we hope you have enjoyed this uh, seven-part series we've been doing this fall, uh, taking a look at people and figures and moments in the Bible we thought one way and then turned out to be a little bit different or maybe very different. We're going to have new adventures coming up for you uh, and a podcast near you in the future. So join us for a new series next time here on Crazy Facebook. See you all. Bye. Bye.